Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Congressional leaders reach a budget agreement to keep the government funded. Hear why some House Republicans are criticizing the deal, with one calling it smoke and mirrors. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's on the mend after being hospitalized last week. Now Congress and others want to know why it was kept quiet for three days. A moment of profound tension in the Middle East as Secretary of State Antony Blinken pushes for a concerted effort for peace. More on the effort to avert a wider war. Tensions in northern Israel rise after Hezbollah attacks an air traffic control base and Israel's military warns of another war. And Israel's President Isaac Herzog weighs in, marking three months after the October 7th terrorist attack. China announced sanctions for five U.S. defense companies in response to arms sales to Taiwan. We get into the details of what this means for the U.S. with the host of NTD Business. The countdown to a busy year in spaceflight begins today. Hear about the new missions and a bit of controversy over what should be sent to the moon. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Happy Monday. Today is January 8th. Yes, we hope you all had a great weekend. And you know, Evelyn, Speaker Johnson has his hand full with some of those members of his conference not happy with his deal. Right. Uh, the Republicans do want those deep spending cuts, but the deal is the first step, I guess. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, they have a tough spot here. They either pass a series of funding bills to keep the government open or they just go with a clean CR or something to help keep the lights on, but that might not address the actual issue. Right. We will delve into this a little bit more afterwards, but our top story today is in the Middle East because Secretary of State Antony Blinken seeks to avert a broader war on his diplomatic visit there to the Middle East. Blinken will be in the United Arab Emirates in Saudi Arabia today. He's then heading to Israel. It's his fourth trip to calm tensions since the October 7th terrorist attack. Blinken was in Jordan and Qatar yesterday after stops in Turkey and Greece over the weekend. Blinken is warning the conflict in Gaza could spread. In Qatar, Blinken called the war a moment of profound tension for the region. He's asking for a concerted effort toward peace. His visit comes as the terrorist group Hezbollah in Lebanon launched over 40 missiles into northern Israel over the weekend. That was an apparent response to the killing of a Hamas leader in Beirut last week. We're going to go deeper on that in a bit. Blinken says the protection of civilians and humanitarian aid will be at the top of his agenda in Israel. A State Department official said Blinken is pressing Muslim nations to play a role in preparing for the reconstruction, governance and security of Gaza after the war ends. Here's Blinken in Qatar. We continue to raise with Israel the need to do everything possible to facilitate the provision of humanitarian aid to Gaza. They must not be pressed to leave Gaza. We reject the statements by some Israeli ministers and lawmakers calling for a resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. These statements are irresponsible, they're inflammatory, and they only make it harder to secure a future of Palestinian-led Gaza, with Hamas no longer in control and with terrorist groups no longer able to threaten Israel's security. 
So for more insights into Blinken's diplomacy talks, we bring in David Wormser. He is an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning, David. Good to see you. So we just heard Blinken started his trip in Turkey. He wants to prevent the war from spreading. So let's break that down for us here. How do you see him go about this with what kind of messages does he have for the leaders there? Good morning, Evelyn. Um, well, I think uh, one of the main things he's going to seek is, first of all, to prevent the war in the north, which is already a war to some extent from escalating any further between Israel and Hezbollah. The idea is that if they can get Israel to move to the next phase in Gaza and tamp down the level of intensity of the Israeli attacks against Hamas, you could reach a ceasefire with the north. And then you can work for a long-term security arrangement, all of which, by the way, would mean that Israel's goals are not fully met. So, but how much decisiveness do you think the U.S. Uh, this time around is willing to show to actually put pressure, for example, on Turkey or Qatar, who are still providing significant support to Hamas? I don't think the United States can assert too much with them because, unfortunately, we haven't responded very strongly to the proxy war that Iran is waging, and that's reduced our credibility with many of these countries. So if we push, we just become irrelevant. So I think there's strong limits to how far we're going to be able to push. Uh, our great bridges with our ally, Israel, and uh, that's also beginning to fray to some extent. But for the moment, that's, that's where I think our greatest leverage is. So that's probably where you're going to see the most pressure from the United States. I see. So while well, Blinken is visiting a list of countries, and you just mentioned the ceasefire that um, in the north, um, potentially, that would help. And then, of course, there is the Houthis and the Red Sea. So how much leverage do the leaders that Blinken is having talks with, um, how much leverage do they have when it comes to reining in Hezbollah and the Houthis? Yeah, I think uh, at this point, uh, Qatar may have some leverage over Hamas in terms of uh, giving it if there's real pressure from, from Qatar, that could have some influence on Hamas. But I think very few of them have any leverage otherwise on any of these other actors, whether it's Hezbollah or the Houthis in Yemen, like you rightly point out. I think ultimately those decisions come from Tehran, from Iran. And I don't, I don't see the Iranians necessarily answering at all to any American pressure. Mm. So tell me a bit more about uh, what's at stake here for the U.S. if the war really should spread. Well, I think, I think for the United States, the way we see it is that it would eliminate a chance to come to terms with Iran to reach some sort of a regional agreement, uh, uh, Iran-American, JCPOA, uh, the, the old Iran deal, some sort of a regional agreement that would bring Iran tamping down its proxies. In other words, the Iranians become a structure through which the region calms down through leaning on its proxies. I think that's the goal. Uh, however, I don't see that as a realistic goal. So I think what will happen is the United States will find a longer term, uh, low, uh, I don't want to say low intensity, but a longer term war between Iran's proxies, mm -hmm. Israel, and with overflow on the United States all the time. Right. A lot of moving pieces here. Let's turn our attention um, to um, Blinken's visit uh, to Israel soon. So he was also speaking of the need for Israel to adjust military operations, reduce civilian casualties. Um, how much weight do these statements carry then for Israel? 
for Israel, they carry great weight because the Israelis still believe that they're uh, strongly dependent on America's industrial base for resupply. They're not asking for American troops or anything, but they're asking for the continued provision of artillery shells, bullets, and so forth. So there's a great deal of leverage there, but it's great tension within Israel because at the same time, none of their main goals have been met yet in this war, and they don't believe this can be done with the sort of tactics that the United States is advocating. Mm. Uh, the Israelis believe you need to take ground, you need to actually occupy Gaza in order to clean it out from Hamas and find all the remaining hostages. Because the so, United States thinks that it can be done with surgical strikes from here on in. Hmm. But do you, so do you think then this will, the same weight, it will carry the same weight when it comes to, because U.S. was talking about how, um, well, Blinken is saying that U.S. is against the displacement of Gazans after the war. So do you think um, it carries the same weight when it comes to the ultimate decision that Israel will make on this post-war? Uh, I think it's, I think the United States uh, pressure on Israel is still very high, but it's beginning to it's beginning to decline because the Israelis really do have to meet their goals. So does America really have the leverage over Israel in the long run? Certainly they have a lot of leverage, but I'm not sure that they really have uh, uh, the leverage right now to get the goals that Blinken is seeking. So I'm not, I don't see his trip as a success. I don't think he has sufficient gravity to get Israel to do what Israel believes very much is, is against its interests at this point. Thank you so much for a breakdown on this this morning and a closer look. Thank you so much, David Wormser. I appreciate it. Thank you. Israel's President Isaac Herzog says the war launched against Israel on October 7th was a watershed in world and regional affairs. He called it a war against values of the free world. Here's Herzog on NBC yesterday, marking three months since the Hamas terrorist attack impacts the entire world because when you have an empire of evil emanating from Tehran with arms in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Yemen, which increases the cost of living of every American because of hijacking in the high seas, it means it's a regional battle with impacts on the entire global situation. Hezbollah has struck an air traffic control base in northern Israel, the Israeli military said Sunday. It said air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place and that no soldiers were hurt. Despite that, it was one of the most serious attacks by Hezbollah in the months of fighting. Israel's military chief says pressure on Hezbollah will either be effective or lead to another war. Israeli leaders say if tensions cannot be resolved through diplomacy, they're prepared to use force. That's as top U.S. and EU diplomats visited the region to seek ways to halt spillover from the war. Here's more. Israel and the Iranian-backed Hezbollah group exchanged fire on Saturday amid fears that the Gaza war could spill into Lebanon. Hezbollah, the Lebanese ally of Gaza's Hamas, said it had hit a key Israeli observation post with 62 rockets. That was described as a preliminary response to the killing of Hamas's deputy chief Salah al-Aruri on Tuesday. Israel's military said approximately 40 launches had been identified from Lebanon towards the area of Meron in northern Israel. It said it had responded with an unmanned aerial vehicle strike on, quote, the terrorist cell responsible. 
According to the military, Israeli fighter jets and troops also struck a series of Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. Arawi was killed in an attack widely attributed to Israel. The head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, said on Friday that Lebanon would be exposed to more Israeli operations if his group did not respond to the killing. Concerns over escalating regional tensions prompted a renewed diplomatic push on Saturday. Israel and Hezbollah have often traded fire across the Lebanese border. The West Bank is seething with emotion, and the Iran-aligned Houthis in Yemen seem determined to continue attacks on Red Sea shipping lanes until Israel stops bombarding Gaza. Next, congressional leaders work out a deal to keep the government funded through the end of the fiscal year. Here, while one congressman is calling it nothing but another loss for America. Members of Congress are wondering why they were kept in the dark over Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's stay in intensive care. What we know about the top defense official's condition. Former President Trump says he'll attend a federal appeals court hearing on presidential immunity. Hear more on the legal dates to watch this week. Good to have you back. Congressional leaders announced yesterday they've worked out a budget agreement to keep the government funded through the end of the fiscal year. And today's Daniel Monahan breaks down the deal for us. The deal between House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer includes $886 billion in defense spending and $704 billion in non-defense spending. House Speaker Johnson says the agreement speeds up the roughly $20 billion in cuts already agreed to for the IRS and rescinds about $6 billion in COVID relief money that had been approved but not yet spent. According to Johnson, the deal, quote, represents the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade. In a letter to members on Sunday, Johnson wrote that the top line of the spending deal constitutes $1.59 trillion for fiscal year 2024. The top line is the overall spending level. But House Freedom Caucus member Representative Andy Biggs challenged that number on X, writing, The D.C. Uniparty's purported top-line spending deal of $1.59 trillion is bogus. $1.658 trillion is the real number once you dig through the smoke and mirrors. Sad to say, but the spending epidemic in Washington continues, with both parties being culpable. Congressman Bob Good also criticized the deal, writing Republicans agreeing to spending levels $69 billion higher than last summer's debt ceiling deal, with no significant policy wins, is nothing but another loss for America. President Biden said the agreement protects important national priorities and rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it's a good deal for Democrats and the country. Despite the tentative agreement, two funding deadlines are coming up, January 19th and February 2nd. If Congress does not approve the budget deal hammered out by its leaders, the government could still shut down. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's on the mend after being in, in intensive care last week. Anonymous Defense and Biden 
administration officials say top leaders weren't told about his condition for days. That allegedly includes President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Austin's Deputy of Defense. The reported lapse in communication comes amid high tensions in the Middle East. Iran-backed terror groups have been lashing out against U.S. bases and troops, provoking strikes from the U.S. and Iraq and Syria. Austin is 70 and served 41 years in the military, retiring as a four-star army general. He's just under the president in the chain of military command. He needs to be ready at a moment's notice to react to any type of national security crisis, including a nuclear attack. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what we know about the top defense leader's condition. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder stated Austin had an elective medical procedure December 22nd and was released from the hospital a day later. He says Austin was sent into intensive care on Monday, New Year's Day, after experiencing severe pain. Ryder says the National Security Council and Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks weren't told until three days later on Thursday. The spokesman stated Austin's chief of staff was ill and unable to make notifications before then. Ryder says Austin is recovering well and resumed full duties Friday evening from his hospital bed. Hicks was in Puerto Rico on leave and set to return to Washington, but decided to stay after finding out Austin was taking back full control. Temporary transfers of authority without explanation are not unheard of, but the lack of transparency is raising some concerns in Congress. Senator Roger Wicker, the top-ranking GOP member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, wished Austin a speedy recovery, but says the delay was unacceptable. Wicker accuses the Defense Department of deliberately withholding information about Austin's health for days, calling it a shocking defiance of the law. The Republican senator says the episode erodes trust in the Biden administration and is demanding that lawmakers are given a full accounting of the facts immediately. Democratic Representative Adam Smith put out a joint statement with GOP Congressman Mike Rogers, expressing concern with how the disclosure of Austin's condition was handled. Smith and Rogers ask why the notification took so long, what the medical procedure and resulting complications were, and when the delegation of his duties was made. The two lawmakers are demanding Austin provide details of his health and on the decision-making process that took place, stating transparency is vitally important. The Pentagon Press Association called the slow alert an outrage in a letter to Austin and Ryder, declaring it's critical for Americans to know the top defense leader's health status and decision-making ability, noting growing threats in the Middle East and the key security role the U.S. plays in Israel and Ukraine. Austin took responsibility for the late disclosure Saturday night, stating he could have done a better job of notifying the public about his health. The Pentagon says Austin has no plans to resign. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And President Biden will give his annual State of the Union address on March 7th. House Speaker Mike Johnson on Saturday extended the formal invitation for Biden to speak at a joint session of Congress. Johnson said he was inviting Biden in this moment of great challenge for our country. Biden accepted on X, writing, Looking forward to it, Mr. Speaker. This will be the first State of the Union for Johnson as Speaker, who traditionally sits behind the President and to his left during the address to Congress. This year's speech will offer an opportunity for Biden to detail his broader vision and policy priorities as he campaigns for re-election in November. The annual address from the President to Congress is usually scheduled for late January or February. Biden's March 7th address would be the latest that a president has delivered the State of the Union since Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1934. Hunter Biden will be the focus of two committees when the House of Representatives returns to full session this week. The Judiciary and Oversight Committees will move ahead with a formal contempt of Congress resolution for the president's son. 
The move stems from the younger Biden ignoring a subpoena to testify behind closed doors. While well, he did offer to testify before Congress publicly, that offer was rejected by Oversight Committee Chair James Comer and Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. Comer and Jordan say they have significant evidence suggesting President Biden knew of, participated in, and benefited from his family cashing in on the Biden name. Hunter Biden's attorney said, quote, it's clear that Republican chairmen aren't interested in getting the facts or they would allow Hunter to testify publicly. He added, what are they afraid of? The hearing over contempt charges is planned for Wednesday, a day before Hunter Biden is scheduled to make his first court appearance on tax charges. Former President Trump says he'll attend an appeals court hearing regarding the scope of his presidential immunity tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Trump said on X that he was entitled to immunity as president and commander-in-chief. Trump has maintained the case should be dismissed on the grounds that a former president cannot face criminal charges for conduct related to their official responsibilities. District Judge Tanya Chutkin rejected that claim. Trump appealed that ruling, which suspended his trial. Trump has a busy legal week ahead of him. He and the majority of defendants in the Georgia election case face a motion deadline today. The D.C. appeals court hearing is tomorrow. Thursday, Trump is expected to attend closing arguments in his New York civil fraud case. The FBI announced on January 6th, three years to the day after the Capitol breach, that it had arrested three fugitives. The move comes amid concerns about the treatment of dozens of January 6th detainees jailed without trial. The FBI's Tampa division says it executed warrants on the morning of January 6th at a ranch in Groveland, Florida. All three individuals were taken into custody there. The agency wrote on X that the people arrested were Jonathan Daniel Pollock, Olivia Michelle Pollock, and Joseph Daniel Hutchinson III. All had been wanted by the FBI since federal arrest warrants were issued in 2021. And they're all charged with assault and resisting arrest. The three defendants are set to appear in federal court today in Ocala, Florida. Coming up, a ballot initiative that aims to protect kids from cross-sex procedures develops into a lawsuit against an attorney general. That's coming up after the break. Welcome back. We're continuing with more on the spending deal we told you about a moment ago. Yes, the deadline looms and there is a chance for demands over immigration reform to pose a threat to the deal. Is this a path forward? Let's find out with Bart Marquois, a former presidential campaign policy advisor. Bart, thank you so much for coming on this morning. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good. Do you see this spending agreement going through or is it going to be held up by those demands over immigration reform, including that asylum provision? You know, it, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a toss up. I, the Republicans have to approve it and they are down to a one vote majority in the house. Two people, two Republicans defecting on it could, could uh, kill the deal. I don't see it holding together, to be honest with you. I think that, I think that, uh, the Republicans, the conservative Republicans are going to balk. They're going to insist on a border deal. Somebody has to blink. I think the uh, I think the um, it, it's going to fall apart before something comes together. That's my best guess. 
Yeah, it's something we have to keep a close eye on. And Speaker Johnson's walking a tight line there with some of those conservative hardliners in his caucus not being too happy with this. Who got the upper hand, in your view, in the negotiations? Oh, I think the Democrats did because they they control the Senate firmly. Chuck Schumer is a wily old serpent, and he knows. I mean, I'm saying this metaphorically. Don't uh, don't uh, get me wrong. He knows his uh, his uh, parliamentary procedure. He knows his caucus. He has them firmly in hand. Uh, Mitch McConnell is not supported. Uh, he has not earned the trust of his uh, of his party members. And and uh, Mike Johnson, as I said, has such a narrow majority, and and when you look beyond the parliamentary maneuvering and you look at just principles, the the Republicans are fighting for principle, the Democrats are fighting for political advantage, and the person playing the short game usually wins in a situation like this. I think the Democrats have the upper hand. Well, as we mentioned, they took a hit to their IRS funding, $10 billion coming off of that, bringing that total cut back to about $20 billion here. But how does the nation's overall debt hamstring these negotiators? That's the real question, because when you look at it, it'll say, okay, well, this is going to allow $880-some billion for defense spending, $785-88 billion for non-defense spending. But nobody's talking about how much is being paid on interest on the debt. We're paying $700 billion a year in interest on the debt. It's the third largest line item. And that's, that's if you combine all of the other defense spending in one thing and all of the non-defense spending in another category, then interest on the debt is the number three thing. Can you imagine $780 billion or $760 billion in interest on the debt, we have no room to wiggle in this because we have spent ourselves into oblivion. We're only able to keep this up because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. If the other nations ever decide they won't accept dollars in payments anymore or they won't allow huge purchases like like oil trading and gas trading and other energy trades to be done in the dollar we're sunk we we have no we the dollar only has value because people around the world are accepting it in trade if they stop then we suddenly are faced with the fact that our currency has become worthless well, Bart, you do make a good point. This about $34 trillion in national debt certainly poses a big challenge. But what does the spending deal mean for Americans? Oh, it will mean this, this particular spending deal will mean that they, they will avert a budget shutdown, a government shutdown, rather, uh, on the 19th or 20th of January. Uh, I wish that, uh, that members of Congress would stand up and tell the truth to the American people. A government shutdown would be very hard on on uh, uh, people who work for the government if that their if their pay were not replaced or, or made up once the budget is in place. But really, all it means it, it's a, a shutdown is meaningless. It just means that for a few days we don't have spending authority. Um, what they need to do is say, okay, we're shutting the government down and we're not making up this payment as long as the government is shut down. We're not going to make up those payments. The government workers 
got paid throughout the two and a half years of the lockdowns when private sector workers were not getting paid at all. Nobody made up that that payment to the private sector workers. When a, when the government shuts down, we talk about it as if it's absolutely catastrophic. It really isn't. It's difficult, but it's not catastrophic. It would mean very little to most Americans if the government shut down for a few days. Most people wouldn't even notice it. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Bart Marcoy is former presidential campaign policy advisor. My pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. And House Republicans plan to quickly impeach Homeland, Secretary, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas early this year. Since regaining the House majority, Republicans have sought to impeach Mayorkas over his handling of illegal immigration at the southern border. Homeland Security Chair Mark Green has accused Mayorkas of failing to enforce existing immigration laws and argued it's a violation of his oath to uphold the Constitution. Now, some moderate lawmakers have signaled support for impeachment. If successful, the move would make Mayorkas the first cabinet secretary impeached in nearly 150 years. Mayorkas has downplayed impeachment concerns. A legal battle with children at the heart of it is playing out on the West Coast. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with an executive com committee member of the Protect Kids California organization about a ballot initiative and a lawsuit against California's attorney general. The Protect Kids of California 2024 Act is a ballot initiative with three aims, keeping girls sports and girls spaces for girls, requiring schools to notify parents if a child is transitioning to another gender, and outlawing cross-sex procedures and puberty blockers on minors. 550,000 verified signatures are needed to get the initiative on the ballot this year. Protect Kids California announced a lawsuit last week against California Attorney General Rob Bonta. They say the language he put on the petition for the ballot initiative unfairly prejudices voters. Bonta described the initiative on the official documents and petitions as restricting the rights of transgender youth. Assemblymember Bill Asali attended a rally on the steps of the state capitol in Sacramento last week focused on the ballot initiative. Kids are special, they're to be protected, and that they need their parents. And the government has no place interfering in that. Lifelong Democrat and attorney Erin Friday discussed the ballot initiatives at the rally. Females are entitled to privacy and dignity. Male bodies do not belong in female spaces or sports, period. Detransitioner Chloe Cole appeared as well, speaking out against cross-sex procedures on minors. Cole says she still has open wounds on her chest from where her breasts were removed at 15 and says she feels like a Frankenstein's monster. Children and adolescents like me need your signature. They need you to get this issue on the ballot. This state is far too beautiful to be stained with the blood of innocent children. In fact, this country this country is much too beautiful. Freedom Angels co-founder Tara Thornton says ballot initiatives like Protect Kids California is how people can organize and take back their state from the streets. If, you get, if we get this on the ballot, we will end Newsom's sanctified sanctuary state for child sterilization. Protect Kids California Executive Committee member Jay Reed says adolescence is difficult and that there are a lot of confused kids out there. There is a medical industry out there that's 
um, giving false choices to parents. It says, if you, if your kid is confused about their gender, you need to be put on cross sex hormones and get these kind of surgeries right away, or your kid is going to die. Reed says kids need psychotherapy from people trained in gender dysphoria, not a surgeon's scalpel. You know, in the state of California, <laughs> you have to be 18 years old to get those little New Year's Eve poppers that you pull the pin and, okay? But you could be 13 and walk into a gender clinic and, you know, be prescribed cross-sex hormones. Attorney General Rob Bonta addressed the role of schools regarding the gender transition of students last year at a press conference. We have to ensure our schools are sanctuaries for every single student. We have to fight those who would try to rip that away from them. NTD reached out to Bonta for a comment on the lawsuit. We are still waiting to hear back from him. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, China announces sanctions for several U.S. defense companies in response to U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. We get more on the significance of this announcement with the host of Entity Business. And an update on the harrowing Alaska Airlines flight. The missing part of the aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. Get the whole story coming up. Good to have you back and we have NTD business host Don Ma joining us now to discuss China's recent sanctions on U.S. companies. Beijing announced sanctions yesterday on five American defense related companies. So Don, start by telling us why did China sanction these companies? Yeah, so a uh, Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said yesterday that the sanctions were in response to Washington's arms sales to Taiwan. Uh, so uh, last month, the State uh, Department approved a $300 million uh, equipment sale to the democratically ruled island. And this, this was helped to maintain uh, Taiwan's tactical information systems, among other defense-related uh, re things. And so here's a bit of background information. The U.S. switched diplomatic relations uh, recognition from Taiwan to China in the 70s. And, but it's still bound by law to ensure that Taiwan uh, has the ability to uh, defend itself, um, but the Chinese spokesperson still said that the arms sales uh, seriously undermine China's uh, sovereignty and uh, security interests. Uh, China claims that the move has uh, jeopardized peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And the reason why China says this is because uh, Taiwan uh, it sees it as its own territory, and uh, that is in spite the fact that it has never actually ruled the democratically island. Uh, and because of this, the U.S. Uh, sales of arms to Taiwan has been a, a point of tension very frequently, actually, between Washington and China. And the companies that's going to be sanctioned are uh, BAE Systems, uh, Aligned Tech Systems, and three other companies. Now, as for what the sanctions uh, actually do, uh, China is going to freeze any property that is... Uh, that the companies have in China, including other assets as well. And it's going to ban China or organize, uh, ban people actually, or organizations in China from doing business with them. Yeah. Right. 
So as you mentioned, it's a frequent point of tension. It's not the first time China does it, but it's a significant market for often for U.S. companies. So what will be the impact on the U.S. side? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the sanctions yesterday apparently is an upgraded countermeasure and is intended as punishment uh, for these companies. Uh, so by imposing the sanctions, China could be thinking that uh, these companies would maybe realize that uh, crossing one of China's red lines would lead to the loss of the Chinese market. Um, I mean, in theory, that could be the, the case, but it's unclear what impact, if any, um, that these sanctions would have on the company because it, American defense contractors generally don't sell to China. Um, I mean, it does sell, but not to uh, the d degree compared to other uh, locations. Uh, so maybe this could be act acting as a deterrence, um, but uh, it's worth pointing out that this, uh, these sanctions come less than a week ahead of Taiwan's presidential election. And sometimes many, many of these sanctions uh, uh, are often symbolic. So, you know, it remains to be seen uh, what actual impacts this may have. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host of Entity Business. Yep, my pleasure. And the missing part of the Alaska Airlines aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. This incident led to the nationwide grounding <clears throat> excuse me, of specific Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft and numerous flight cancellations. Here's more on the story. 177 passengers and crew on an Alaskan Airlines flight survived an alarming experience after a section of the plane blew off the aircraft mid-flight. The plane had just taken off six minutes before the incident. The Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet safely returned to the Portland airport with no serious injuries on board. Although there were some minor injuries, National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy said it could have been much worse. We are very, very fortunate here that this didn't end up in something more tra uh, tragic. No one was seated in 26 A and B, where, the, where that door, that, um, door plug is. Hamidi said the cockpit door flew open and the depressurization ripped headset parts off the heads of both the captain and co-pilot. She also said it was extremely lucky the plane had not yet reached cruising altitude when passengers and flight attendants might be walking around the cabin. A federal official said yesterday that particular airplane wasn't being used for flights to Hawaii. A warning light indicating a possible pressurization issue lit up on three different previous flights. Hours after the incident, the FAA ordered the grounding of all MAX 9s until they could be inspected. Alaska and United Airlines are the only U.S. airlines flying the MAX 9. Alaska Airlines said it canceled 170 flights yesterday and 60 more today. Cancellations will continue through the first half of the week. The Sunday cancellations affected nearly 25,000 guests. A plea went out to local Portland residents for help in finding the missing fuselage plug. The search ended yesterday when a local teacher found the missing piece in his backyard. They say flying is the safest way to fly or to travel, but that yeah. certainly reminds us that there are risks. I mean, Boeing will have some answering to do now. Just happy that nobody got hurt. But yeah, why does the t you say it? It's, it's, it seems the safest way, but you know, things like that. When yeah. things like that happen, it just yeah, who knows? Maybe they'll make the door seats a little bit less expensive. Oh, that well, reason. that would be the other way around. <laughs> Maybe. Let's see. Well, we're heading to a quick break. Yeah, stay with us. A busy year in space flights begins today with a U.S. mission. 
But there's also some controversy over what should be sent to the moon, so stick around. Welcome back. Have you ever dreamed of becoming an astronaut and going on a space adventure? Or maybe you just like keeping up with the latest rocket technology. 2024 is set to be a busy year in space. There's an international push to expand space exploration. Let's look at some upcoming missions. 2024 promises to be an eventful year for space flight. The U.S. kicks off the year's activities on January 8th with the first commercial robotic launch to the moon's surface. Then in the spring, the U.S. will debut its replacement to the space shuttle. The new vehicle is scheduled to dock with the International Space Station and in the future do much more. It's first uh, spacecraft, the Dream Chaser, into orbit to chase down the space station, drop off, start dropping off stuff, and down the road they foresee perhaps tourist flights or even uh, once commercial space stations come about to replace the International Space Station, um, they could be delivering crews to that. Blue Origin's new Glenn is being launched to put payloads into space. It's named after legendary astronaut John Glenn. That mission is scheduled to launch this summer. New Glenn rocket will finally lift off to hoist a payload into orbit. New Glenn is designed to actually put things into orbit. Boeing's Starliner has overcome technical problems and had a successful unmanned flight to the space station. This spring, it's scheduled for a manned flight to the space station. It's encountered all sorts of problems, software issues, mechanical problems, the latest is parachute issues, uh, wiring that was flammable uh, with the tape, all kinds of things. Well, finally, everything seems to have gotten taken care of, and hopefully in the spring, maybe April, uh, Boeing will be launching with two NASA astronauts on board. Scientists believe Jupiter's moon Europa shows evidence of water under its frozen crust. NASA will launch the Europa Clipper in October on a four-year-long research mission. The Europa Clipper will do multiple flybys of Europa and sort of check it out to see if maybe could the environment there be conducive to possible life. At the end of 2024, SpaceX will carry four astronauts to the moon for a fly-around mission. And sometime in 2025, NASA hopes to put people on the moon again. Coming up at the end of 2024, fingers crossed, four astronauts, three Americans, one Canadian, will actually go around the moon in the Orion capsule this time and then come back. And that should set the stage for the next mission being the actual moon landing by another crew of astronauts. But don't space out yet. There's even more to come. Japan, Australia, and China have also scheduled space missions this year. Fans of spaceflight should be over the moon with all the activities planned for 2024. More from space, the Peregrine Mission 1 lander launched from Cape Canaveral this morning. The commercial mission prompted a last-minute meeting at the White House prior to the launch. The lunar mission has raised ethical concerns with members of the Navajo tribe, which asked the Biden administration to delay the flight. It comes as the mission is carrying human remains destined for a lunar burial. Entities Cost MNS has more. Peregrine Mission 1 is set to mark the first lunar touchdown for an American-made spacecraft since 1972. 
The mission also marks the start of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS initiative. It allows the U.S. Space Agency to outsource the launch and transport of its lunar cargo to private companies. Additionally, the mission includes over 60 memorial capsules containing cremated human remains and DNA. But according to the president of the Navajo Nation, this could be an affront to many indigenous cultures. Calling it deeply disturbing and unacceptable to indigenous people and many other tribal nations. The moon is highly revered by many Native American tribes and has sacred standing in Navajo cosmology. Moreover, the Navajo Nation argued that the moon shouldn't be turned into a graveyard or waste site and should receive the same protection as places on Earth, such as the Grand Canyon. The private companies providing these lunar burial services are Celestis and Elysium Space. Celestis said, they are aware of the concerns made by the Navajo Nation president, but ultimately dismissed them, arguing that leaving the remains was an expression of celebration rather than desecration. The issue has raised questions over who holds authority over the moon. Still in its early stages, rules pertaining to the mission are still evolving. It's not the first time Navajo Nation has expressed concerns about burials on the moon. In 1999, NASA's Lunar Prospector mission deliberately crashed a spacecraft into the moon, which carried the remains of former astronaut Eugene Shoemaker. The unmanned Peregrine 1 is due to land on the moon on February 23rd. Cost MNS, NTD News. Who has rights to the moon? Who gets there first? Million dollar question. Yeah. Nobody knows. So you're going to have to figure that one out. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, that's 21st century news for you right. lunar burials. All right. We'll be right back in one minute. So stay with us. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. One week until Iowa caucuses, Republican candidates setting themselves apart. Who has the strongest message and who has the most at stake? A deep dive with a political analyst. Congressional leaders reach a budget agreement to keep the government funded. Hear why some House Republicans are criticizing the deal, with one calling it smoke and mirrors. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is seeking to avert a wider war as tensions between Iran-backed Hezbollah and Israel increase. More on the top diplomats' efforts in the Middle East. China announced sanctions for five U.S. defense companies in response to arms sales to Taiwan. We get into the details of what this means for the U.S. with the host of Entity Business. Members of Congress are wondering why they were kept in the dark over Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's stay in intensive care, what we know about the top defense officials' condition. We head over to Australia where a postal service is operating as the last of its kind, but still with great success. We take a look at this unique service, what it offers.
This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Monday, January 8th. And today's top news is the upcoming presidential contest in Iowa. The GOP caucuses start in a week and candidates are pushing hard to win support. Haley coming out swinging on foreign policy, wanting to arm U.S. allies, supercharge the military with AI, and take a tough stance on China over fentanyl. But everyone knows who the clear favorite is in the state, former President Trump. He's telling his supporters not to sit on the couch and watch him win on TV, but to get out and caucus. So let's dive right into this. Joining me now to discuss weekend rallies in Iowa is Jeff Courier, a political analyst and TV radio host. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Great to be with you. Good morning. So Ramaswamy was in Ames on Friday, and he said he would rather seek the truth and lose than play some political game of snakes and ladders. Was his message of transparency enough to get him to support, to get at least a second place? You know, it's going to be tough. Uh, the polls that I've seen, Kevin, show him in fourth. Um, you know, he's not making the uh, final debate stage uh, because of his uh, poll numbers. But here's what's interesting. Among Trump supporters, he is extremely popular. And I, I saw at the Trump rally questions being asked as to who the VP choice should be. The majority said uh, Ramaswamy. So he's certainly uh, getting a lot of support from Trump supporters, but they're going to go for uh, Donald Trump, not Vivek. So uh, I don't see him catapulting uh, into second. Yeah, and Vivek Ramaswamy has been very busy there. 239 events in Iowa, and that's more than twice than the next busiest candidate. Nikki Haley made her first stop of the year in Des Moines on Friday. And she has a spotlight on her. Some say that she has the most at stake. Do you agree with this? I do because, uh, you know, a lot of attention has been on Nikki Haley lately. I mean, she's been considered the one that has maybe the best chance of uh, stopping Donald Trump. A lot of the establishment uh, Republicans are now getting behind her, leaving DeSantis, seeing that she's maybe uh, the one that could uh, possibly succeed. She's uh, made a few mistakes uh, recently, though, or comments uh, about uh, slavery and the Civil War, or comments about uh, New Hampshire correcting the vote of uh, Iowa. Uh, those are big mistakes, and, and I think it's uh, hurt her in these final few days uh, before the caucus. So we'll see. Uh, expectations are very high for her. If she has a poor showing, it's going to hurt her in New Hampshire, where she needs to do well. So uh, she's got a lot at stake, maybe more so than any other candidate. Well, we're going to get a little litmus test in Iowa on how voters feel about her more engaged foreign policy being more like the world police, America on the front stage, whereas some have cast Trump as being a little bit more back in the, the background there as opposed to Haley's moves. Now, is Trump stepping up his ground game to ensure that voters actually get out and caucus for him instead of just sitting back and expecting a win? Kevin, from what I can see, he's got a very good ground organization. Uh, he's got some top people working for him. Uh, he's got the Secretary of State behind him there in Iowa. Of course, Ron DeSantis has the governor uh, behind him. But Trump's uh, hitting it hard. He did a lot of events uh, over the weekend. I think he's not taking anything for granted. Let's not forget, in 2016, Trump lost uh, in Iowa. So he doesn't want to have that uh, situation again. He wants to win Iowa, build from there, and win New Hampshire, and then take out Nikki Haley in uh, South Carolina, her home state. So it's, uh, I think, uh, very possible for that to happen. He's doing very well. The last poll that I saw showed him at 52% in Iowa. The largest margin of victory ever in Iowa is 12 points. 
if he uh, significantly beats that, that's going to be a, a major boost for President Trump. Yeah, you're right. And Senator Ted Cruz bested Trump in Iowa back in 2016. Are Iowa's Christian conservatives, some of whom are starting to lean towards Trump, are they going to propel him to victory in the Hawkeye state? I think they're part of his uh, coalition because, as you know, uh, it's a very part, uh, big part of uh, what uh, is going to be on display there on, on caucus night in Iowa. But here's what I think is really going to help him in Iowa. He's got a track record of uh, producing for Iowa, of course. Uh, he's backed ethanol. He, he backed Iowa having the first uh, position in the uh, GOP race. And he gave a lot of money to farmers when he was president. And he keeps reminding them of how he delivered for the state of Iowa. So I think his record is going to be one that helps him with all voters, including the Christian conservatives there in Iowa. Yeah, those tariffs on China really helped the farmers there. Jeff Career, political analyst and TV radio host, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Congressional leaders announced yesterday they've worked out a budget agreement to keep the government funded through the end of the fiscal year. And today's Daniel Monahan breaks down the deal for us. The deal between House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer includes $886 billion in defense spending and $704 billion in non-defense spending. House Speaker Johnson says the agreement speeds up the roughly $20 billion in cuts already agreed to for the IRS and rescinds about $6 billion in COVID relief money that had been approved but not yet spent. According to Johnson, the deal, quote, represents the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade. In a letter to members on Sunday, Johnson wrote that the top line of the spending deal constitutes $1.59 trillion for fiscal year 2024. The top line is the overall spending level. But House Freedom Caucus member Representative Andy Biggs challenged that number on X, writing, The D.C. Uniparty's purported top-line spending deal of $1.59 trillion is bogus. $1.658 trillion is the real number once you dig through the smoke and mirrors. Sad to say, but the spending epidemic in Washington continues, with both parties being culpable. Congressman Bob Good also criticized the deal writing Republicans agreeing to spending levels $69 billion higher than last summer's debt ceiling deal with no significant policy wins is nothing but another loss for America. President Biden said the agreement protects important national priorities and rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, it's a good deal for Democrats and the country. Despite the tentative agreement, Two funding deadlines are coming up, January 19th and February 2nd. If Congress does not approve the budget deal hammered out by its leaders, the government could still shut down. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden will give his annual State of the Union address on March 7th. House Speaker Mike Johnson on Saturday extended the formal invitation for Biden to speak at a joint session of Congress. Johnson said he was inviting Biden in this moment of great challenge for our country. Biden accepted on X, writing, looking forward to it, Mr. Speaker. This will be the first State of the Union for Johnson as Speaker, who traditionally sits behind the President and to his left during the address to Congress. This year's speech will offer an opportunity for Biden to detail his broader vision and policy priorities as he campaigns for re-election in November. The annual address from the president to Congress is usually scheduled for late January or February. 
Biden's March 7th address would be the latest that a president has delivered the State of the Union since Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1934. And Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he's on the mend after being in intensive care last week. Anonymous defense and Biden administration officials say top leaders weren't told about his condition for days. That allegedly includes President Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Austin's Deputy of Defense. The reported lapse in communication comes amid high tensions in the Middle East. Iran-backed terror groups have been lashing out against U.S. bases and troops, provoking strikes from the U.S. in Iraq and Syria. Austin is 70 and served 41 years in the military, retiring as a four-star army general. He's just under the president in the chain of military command. He needs to be ready at a moment's notice to react to any type of national security crisis, including a nuclear attack. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what we know about the top defense leader's condition. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder stated Austin had an elective medical procedure December 22nd and was released from the hospital a day later. He says Austin was sent into intensive care on Monday, New Year's Day, after experiencing severe pain. Ryder says the National Security Council and Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks weren't told until three days later on Thursday. Ryder says Austin is recovering well and resumed full duties Friday evening from his hospital bed. Temporary transfers of authority without explanation are not unheard of, but the lack of transparency is raising some concerns in Congress. Senator Roger Wicker, the top-ranking GOP member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, wished Austin a speedy recovery, but says the delay was unacceptable. The Republican senator says the episode erodes trust in the Biden administration and is demanding that lawmakers are given a full accounting of the facts immediately. Democratic Representative Adam Smith put out a joint statement with GOP Congressman Mike Rogers, expressing concern with how the disclosure of Austin's condition was handled. Smith and Rogers asked why the notification took so long, what the medical procedure and resulting complications were, and when the delegation of his duties was made. Austin took responsibility for the late disclosure Saturday night, stating he could have done a better job of notifying the public about his health. The Pentagon says Austin has no plans to resign. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, a moment of profound tension in the Middle East as Secretary of State Antony Blinken pushes for a concerted effort for peace, more in the effort to avert a wider war. An Australian Postal Service is still running as the last of its kind and with great success. We take a look at the unique services it offers. And in entertainment, takeaways from this year's Golden Globe Awards find out who the winners are. Welcome back. Secretary of State Antony Blinken seeks to avert a broader war on his diplomatic visits to the Middle East. Blinken will be in the United Arab Emirates in Saudi Arabia today. He's then heading to Israel. It's his fourth trip to calm tensions since the October 7th terrorist attack. Blinken was in Jordan and Qatar yesterday after stops in Turkey and Greece over the weekend. Blinken is warning the conflict in Gaza could spread. In Qatar, Blinken called the war a moment of profound tension for the region. He's asking for a concerted effort toward peace. His visit comes as the terrorist group Hezbollah in Lebanon launched over 40 missiles into northern Israel over the weekend. That was an apparent response to the killing of a Hamas leader in Beirut last week. We're going to go deeper on that in a bit. 
Blinken says the protection of civilians and humanitarian aid will be at the top of his agenda in Israel. A State Department official said Blinken is pressing Muslim nations to play a role in preparing for the reconstruction, governance and security of Gaza after the war ends. Here's Blinken in Qatar. We continue to raise with Israel the need to do everything possible to facilitate the provision of humanitarian aid to Gaza. They must not be pressed to leave Gaza. We reject the statements by some Israeli ministers and lawmakers calling for a resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. These statements are irresponsible, they're inflammatory, and they only make it harder to secure a future of Palestinian-led Gaza with Hamas no longer in control and with terrorist groups no longer able to threaten Israel's security. Earlier, I spoke to David Wormser, an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. He gave us some insight into Blinken's diplomacy talks. One of the main things he's going to seek is, first of all, to prevent the war in the north, which is already a war to some extent, from escalating any further between Israel and Hezbollah. The idea is that if they can get Israel to move to the next phase in Gaza and tamp down the level of intensity of the Israeli attacks against Hamas, you could reach a ceasefire with the North, and then you can work for a long-term security arrangement, all of which, by the way, would mean that Israel's goals are not fully met. So while Blinken is visiting a list of countries, and you just mentioned the ceasefire that um, in the North, um, potentially that would help, and then, of course, there is the Houthis and the Red Sea. So how much leverage do the leaders that Blinken is having talks with um, how much leverage do they have when it comes to reining in Hezbollah and the Houthis? Yeah, I think uh, at this point, uh, Qatar may have some leverage over Hamas in terms of uh, giving it, uh, if there's real pressure from, from Qatar, that could have some influence on Hamas. But I think very few of them have any leverage otherwise on any of these other actors, whether it's Hezbollah or the Houthis in Yemen, like you rightly point out. I think ultimately those decisions come from Tehran, from Iran, and I don't, I don't see the Iranians necessarily answering at all to any American pressure. Thank you so much for a breakdown on this this morning and a closer look. Thank you so much, David Wormser. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hezbollah struck an air traffic control base in northern Israel, the Israeli military said yesterday. Israel's military is warning of another war with the Iran-backed terrorist group. The Israeli military said air defenses were not affected because backup systems were in place. It said that no soldiers were hurt and all damage will be repaired. Despite that, it was one of the most serious attacks by Hezbollah in the months of fighting. Israel's military chief says military pressure on Hezbollah will either be effective or lead to another war. Israeli leaders say if tensions cannot be resolved through diplomacy, they're prepared to use force. And China's foreign ministry said yesterday that the Chinese regime will sanction five U.S. military manufacturers in response to their latest round of arms sales to Taiwan. The U.S. approved the sale of $300 million worth of equipment to Taiwan last month. That's to help maintain the island's tactical information systems. U.S. arms sales to Taiwan are a frequent source of tension between Washington and the Chinese Communist Party. China views democratically governed Taiwan as its territory, a claim Taiwan's government rejects. The sanctions come ahead of Taiwan's presidential and parliamentary elections this weekend. 
And the missing part of the Alaska Airlines aircraft that blew off mid-flight was found in a backyard in Portland. The incident led to the nationwide grounding of specific Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft and numerous flight cancellations. Federal investigators were searching for the door plug since it came off the plane after leaving Portland on Friday. Here's more on the story. 177 passengers and crew on an Alaskan Airlines flight survived an alarming experience after a section of the plane blew off the aircraft mid-flight. The plane had just taken off six minutes before the incident. The Boeing 737 MAX 9 jet safely returned to the Portland airport with no serious injuries on board. Although there were some minor injuries, National Transportation Safety Board Chair Jennifer Homendy said it could have been much worse. We are very very fortunate here that this didn't end up in something more tr uh, tragic. No one was seated in 26 A and B where, the, where that door, the, um, door plug is. Hamidi said the cockpit door flew open and the depressurization ripped headset parts off the heads of both the captain and co-pilot. She also said it was extremely lucky the plane had not yet reached cruising altitude when passengers and flight attendants might be walking around the cabin. A federal official said yesterday that particular airplane wasn't being used for flights to Hawaii. A warning light indicating a possible pressurization issue lit up on three different previous flights. Hours after the incident, the FAA ordered the grounding of all MAX 9s until they could be inspected. Alaska and United Airlines are the only U.S. airlines flying the MAX 9. Alaska Airlines said it canceled 170 flights yesterday and 60 more today. Cancellations will continue through the first half of the week. The Sunday cancellations affected nearly 25,000 guests. And let's now head over to Australia to some much safer news. Where residents living in a remote part of the country are receiving their mail somewhat unconventionally. That's right. Just north of the city of Sydney, a boat delivers post to hundreds of residents who live alongside the riverside. The service is in the last of its kind in Australia, but business is still very much booming. And today's Cost Temines has more for us. Heading roughly 40 miles north of the busy center of Sydney, residents enjoy the secluded landscape of the Hawkesbury River. Most residents on shore don't have road access to their properties. Justin Pignagai, along with his wife and his brother, run the local postal delivery service from their boat. The, the majority of the land around here is either National Park or Nature Reserve. It's a great place to live. Mail is delivered every weekday, all year round. And locals swear by the service, which is the last of its kind in Australia. And they also enjoy free rides. Deliver anything from a, a postcard to a box of wine uh, and everything in between, up to about 450 articles of mail each day, which is about normal. And of course, there's always gossip and banter to keep things interesting. We still get our deliveries. It does take a couple of days longer, but nothing crazy for, you know, living so far out of the way. The Riverboat Postman has a slight tax on, on they, they say, on their, if you order a dozen, a dozen bottles of wine, then, then they take one bottle for tax, tax purposes. <laughs> there's always some scandal going along. And look, let's just face it. Everyone loves a bit of scandal as long as they're not a part of it. The mail delivery service on the Hawkesbury River started in 1910 and was taken over by Justin and his family in 2012. 
In addition to being a postal service, it has now also become an attraction for tourists who can go out on the water during the mail runs. Reporting by Kos Timonis, NTD News. What a tradition they have going on there. Yeah, it seems like a fun community too. And yeah. apparently one, there are settlements along that river that have populations as small as just one person. Oh wow, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, all that right. wild stretch of that coastline looks mm. really great. Yeah, awesome. All right, and now for some takeaways from this year's Golden Globe Awards. This year's ceremony was hosted by comedian Joe Coy at the Beverly Hilton in Los, An in Los Angeles. CBS's live broadcast yesterday featured awards to many of last year's movies and series. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer and the comedy drama series Succession emerged as the overall winners. Oppenheimer earned five accolades, including for Best Picture, including Killian Murphy as Best Actor and Robert Downey Jr. as Best Supporting Actor. The final season of Succession took home four awards, including trophies for Kieran Culkin, Sarah Snook and Matthew McFadden as Best Actors, as well as Best TV Drama Series. Other top blockbuster nominations include Greta Gerwig's blockbuster Barbie, which won an award for Best Original Song, as well as Yorgos Lanthimos' Poor Things and Celine Song's breakout drama Past Lives. I'm going to note up some uh, movies here that I will have to see now. Ah. The Succession and Poor Things. Yeah. That was definitely on my list and it got even higher now. <laughs> a lot of awards being handed out, a lot of hard work behind all those. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say Oppenheimer was really, it was one of my favorites. Um, it was really good. It was a three hour movie and it was very dialogue, dialogue based, but it didn't lose me for one minute. Yeah. If it can keep the attention, you know it's yeah. good. Mm. That's right. All right. We, on that note, we're wrapping up our show, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.